John chapter 5, verses 1 through 30. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is at Jerusalem, by the sheep gate, a pool, which is called in the Hebrew tongue Bethesda, having five porches. In these lay a great multitude of impotent, a blind halt, withered, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain season into the pool and troubled the water. Whosoever then first, after the troubling of the water, stepped in, was made whole of whatsoever disease he had. And a certain man was there, which had an infirmity thirty and eight years. When Jesus saw him lie, and knew that he had been now a long time in that case, he saith unto him, Wilt thou be made whole? The impotent man answered him, Sir, I have no man, when the water is troubled, to put me into the pool. But while I am coming, another steppeth down before me. Jesus saith unto him, Rise, take up thy bed, and walk. And immediately the man was made whole, and took up his bed, and walked. And on the same day was the Sabbath. The Jews therefore said unto him that was cured, It is a Sabbath day, it is not lawful for thee to carry thy bed. He answered them, he that made me whole, the same said unto me, Take up thy bed and walk. Then asked they him, What man is that which saith unto thee, Take up thy bed and walk? And he that was healed wist not who it was, for Jesus had conveyed himself away, a multitude being in that place. Afterward, Jesus findeth him in the temple, and said unto him, Behold, thou art made whole. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come unto thee. The man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus which had made him whole. And therefore did the Jews persecute Jesus and sought to slay him because he had done these things on the Sabbath day. But Jesus answered them, My father worketh hitherto, and I work. Therefore the Jews sought the more to kill him because he not only had broken the Sabbath, but said also that God was his father, making himself equal with God. Then answered Jesus and said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, the Son can do nothing of himself but what he seeth the Father do. For what, so, for what things soever he doeth, these also doeth the Son likewise. For the Father loveth the Son, and showeth him all things that himself doeth. And he will show him greater works than these, that ye may marvel. For as the Father raiseth up the dead, and quickeneth them, even so the Son quickeneth whom he will." For the Father judgeth no man, but hath committed all judgment unto the Son, that all men should honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He that honoreth not the Son, honoreth not the Father which hath sent him. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my word, and believeth on him that sent me, hath everlasting life, and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the hour is come, and now is, the hour is coming, and now is, when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear it shall live. For as the Father hath life in himself, so hath he given to the Son to have life in himself, and hath given him authority to execute judgment also, because he is the Son of Man." Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming, in the which all that are in the graves shall hear his voice, and shall come forth, they that have done good unto the resurrection of life, 
and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. I can of mine own self do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not mine own will, but the will of the Father which hath sent me. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, we pray thee now that you would open up your word unto us, that again we might see the wonderful works of Christ and his honor and his glory. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Um, well, this morning we're going to talk mainly about the second half of this, of what we read from verse 19 onward. Um, but I wanted to read the whole section so that we would appreciate the continuity of what is taking place here and what is demonstrated for us um, in the things that the Lord did. Uh, a number of years ago, I was in a church, and um, one of the elders said there, he said, you know, I wish Jesus would have declared his divinity, um, that he was God, um, more clearly. And at the time, I thought to myself, are you kidding me? I mean, it's all over the scripture. And right here, we see it in verses, you know, 16, 17, 18. And then from 19 onward, the Lord is going to explain his relationship with the Father and that he is, in fact, uh, God. Um, the Jews understood it. They were not regenerated, and they understood exactly what he said there. And yet, this elder did not understand what the Lord was uh, speaking with respect to his divinity, divinity all throughout um, the Gospels. So I want that certainly to be your takeaway this morning, is that Jesus said quite clearly that he was God. Now, last week, um, we spoke about the Lord healing this certain man here who had an infirmity of 38 years. Now, God is sovereign, and everything that he does in the scriptures is intended to teach us about himself. It's intended to teach us about the gospel. So everything about the circumstances that take place here was designed by our sovereign God to teach about God and about our need for him. It's to teach us the gospel. Now, as you recall here, that there was a multitude of impotent or infirm individuals that were lying there amongst the five porches or colonnades at the pool of Bethesda. Now the Lord has not given us these architectural characteristics just because he wants to make the Bible interesting, but he's trying to teach us something here. It is next to the Sheep Gate, which is adjacent to the temple in Jerusalem. So we have all of these interesting things with respect to the buildings that are there and the way that they are constructed. You recall that there are um, 10 gates around the uh, uh, around Jerusalem, and the most prominent one is the Sheep Gate. And when uh, I think it's in the book of Nehemiah, when they go back and rebuild the walls, they start with the Sheep Gate and they go all the way around and complete at the Sheep Gate because the Sheep Gate is where the sacrificial sheep will be brought in to the temple. So even in the construct and the order that the gates are given in, uh, uh, upon the return of the Israelites to Jerusalem, it's speaking about the cross here. So we can appreciate that this is next to the Sheep Gate because the cross is prominent in all of these things here. And so the architecture helps us to appreciate uh, doctrinal gospel truths for us. The fact that there are five porches there helps us to appreciate that when we see those numbers in the scriptures, that that often represents either grace or judgment. Grace or judgment, and we're going to see that take place here. The construction of the temple is in multiples of five. Um, we know that Jesus had five um, Wounds in his body indicating that God had judgment on him and yet grace on all of those around us. When David went to slay Goliath, he picked up five smooth stones because he was going to kill Goliath and Goliath's um, brothers. Um, so that number finds its way throughout the scripture. So the fact that there are five colonnades here is teaching us something about God's 
grace and judgment, both of which we're going to see here. We see that Jesus has to walk through the multitudes in order to get to the person he's going to have grace and mercy upon. All of the rest of the people there, absent the Lord's grace, are going to suffer his judgment, which Jesus tells us in verse 22, has been commended unto him. The Father hath commended all judgment unto him. And later he's going to tell us why in verse 27, why judgment has been commended unto him. The fact that it's called Bethesda, uh, which means house of mercy in the Hebrew tongue, helps us to appreciate that what we are going to see here is indeed an act of mercy. And we talked about that last week. Whereas all are infirmed, we should appreciate that the solution to their infirmity is only to be found in Christ, who is God manifest in flesh, to whom no one is looking to. Now, as we consider the one unnamed, quote, certain man with whom we should be able to identify with, because as the Lord healed him, so too did he come to us and heal every one of us who were not looking for him. We were not um, seeking God. Scripture makes that clear that there is none that understandeth, there is none that seeketh after God. So we were like this fellow. We were um, bound in our infirmity, and Christ had to come to us and to heal us. Um, scripture says that some people come to the Lord, and the Lord comes to some people. But those that come to the Lord, he says, no man can come to me unless God with has sent me, which has sent me, draw him. So either way, God is the one bringing us to Christ or Christ coming um, to us. So um, this person obviously is someone that we can identify with, and he represents us. And so it's necessary for um, Christ to heal us from our sins, just as he healed him from his sin. I should say the Lord heals us from the effects of our sin as well as removing sin from us when he imputed to it to his um, to Christ. Um, last week we noted that nobody else there was cured by the Lord. When Jesus comes to this man, he says to him, "Wilt thou be made whole?" Now, not only does he not say yes, but apparently nobody else heard the Lord speak either. You would have thought that a hundred hands would have shot up and said, hey, what about me? I'd like to be made whole. But nobody does that. That's, that's not what happened here. It's almost as though nobody heard Jesus speak except this particular individual here. And the Lord says to him in verse 8, the Lord speaks to him exclusively, rise, take up thy bed, and walk. And so... Um, the Lord never hears the answer that from this man that I want to be made whole. He nevertheless says to him, rise, take up thy bed, and walk. Not having the man say to him, I want to be healed, he nevertheless commands him to rise, take up thy bed, and walk. And we see in verse 9 there of John chapter 5, it says, And immediately the man was made whole and took up his bed and walked, and the same, was, uh, the same day was the Sabbath. Now, we appreciate that this man, and only this man, hears the Lord's voice and obeys. Not only does the man obey, but think about what's required for this to take place. Every molecule and every cell in his body that was out of place, causing his infirmity, recognizes or reorganizes themselves according to Jesus' command and properly functions as the Lord intends. It's not like this guy just couldn't stand up or didn't want to stand up, I mean, because he's weak. Um, but he's got an illness and he's got an infirmity that makes it so he can't do it. 
We know that people, uh, the Lord healed people. He made the blind see. Their eyes did not function. He gave hearing to the deaf. He raised people from the dead. He has command over all things. He walks on water. He commands the winds and the waves to cease. Everything obeys the Lord. So that, that simple statement to that man, you have to look beyond just an individual man lying there into um, in his internal workings, if you will. Every molecule and every cell obeyed the Lord's command moved into position where it needed to be, giving him the strength in the flesh to um, arise up and walk. And so we can appreciate this in terms of our own salvation, that God is dealing with our sin. And we know that sin resides in the flesh. The Lord has command over all things. But again, as I've said before, no one else here hears the command and takes up their bed and walk. The organic properties of no one else's body Changes. The Lord spoke directly to this individual, and only that certain man is healed. So clearly the Lord is teaching us the gospel truths about our salvation. At the very least, that God is the sovereign author of our salvation. Scripture says he is the author and finisher of our faith. And indeed, we see this taking place here. The last week, I spent a fair amount of time helping us to appreciate that just as we can see our Heavenly Father in Christ, so too can we see something of the Holy Ghost. For in Him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. So I talked about that last week, about how He's like the wind. He makes these circuits and He comes back. And He's like the angel that moves across the water that we talked about in Genesis chapter 1. We also see that the Lord doing that. I've already mentioned this to you about how He walked on water. And when the Lord walked on water, like we see in Genesis chapter 1, he actually fished a man out of the water. Remember who that was? That was Peter. He pulled Peter out of the water. So we see the Lord demonstrating things that the Holy Ghost does, in addition to him demonstrating characteristics and attributes of the Father. And that's what I want to talk about this morning, because that's where we're going to go to it after verse 19. Jesus is going to set these things before us here. He's going to set it very clearly before us that he and the Father are one. And the fact that uh, the healing of the, that he, what he does to this certain man here helps us to also appreciate this, that um, the authority and the sovereignty uh, demonstrated by Jesus is common with the Father. And so this discourse picks up in verse 17. In verse 17. However, before we get to verse 17, we note that it says, um, after Jesus was healed, excuse me, after Jesus has healed the man, we find the man in the temple. So again, the Lord is teaching us some things here, how, things that we can apply to our lives. After Jesus has healed this man, we find him in the temple, intimating that he is in the body of Christ, which is the church, which is the true temple of God. These are all synonyms in Scripture. The body of Christ and the church, the, uh, the Christian is the temple of God, the church is the temple of God, Christ himself is the temple of God. These are all synonyms, and they represent the true church of God. So... We know that the church today um, is full of weed and tares. Scripture tells us that. But let's just keep this in the pure sense that the Lord is setting it before us here. So that we find this man after he's been commanded to take up his bed and walk. We find him in the true temple of God, which naturally is where you would expect to find the true Christian. And so it is here in the temple where he learns from Jesus that he has been made whole. Now that's not... That's a statement that means more um, when you look into it than just on the surface. It's, it's not like Jesus just made it so he could walk. He said he made him whole. And so 
It is in the church where Christians learn that it is Jesus who has made them whole. They did not uh, make themselves whole. They did not come to Jesus, as I said. They did not exercise some authority over, uh, over themselves in the context of dealing with their sin. Um, they didn't enter into the process. Their works didn't enter into the process, process. But it is Jesus who has made us whole. And we need to come to church to learn that because oftentimes people think that they had something to do with their salvation, that there was something meritorious in and of themselves, that there was something that they did that would make, um, that would endear themselves to God and therefore they somehow entered into this process. But no, that's where this fellow learns that no, it was Jesus that made you whole. Um, and um, it is there where he appreciates Again, that it is Jesus who made him whole, and um, he has been made whole, and Jesus did it. Those are two different things. You have been made whole, and it is Jesus who makes you whole. Um, And this is something that we need to appreciate, that we have been made whole. There is nothing lacking in us in in terms of what the Lord yet needs to accomplish Um, that we would go to glory. We have eternal life the moment the Lord made us whole. There is nothing lacking in us. We will simply, that which is corruptible, our bodies, will put on incorruption. And we're going to read about that as we move forward here into verses 23 and 24 about having eternal life. So those are two things. One, you have been made whole. You are wanting and you are lacking nothing. Your security, your salvation is ever secure. Um, there's nothing that can happen that you might lose it, and Jesus is the one who has accomplished that on, on your behalf for your benefit. Now, um, as we see this individual do, so too um, should we do. It is from the church that this individual goes out into the world, and he witnesses to others, telling them what Jesus has done for his, on his behalf, that Jesus has made him whole. I've been made whole. And Jesus is the one who has done that. And that's what we read about in the scriptures in Matthew 28 with respect to the Great Commission um, that is set before us, that we are to go out, as he says, go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. So we can expect the Lord to accompany us as we go out into the world to share the gospel. That's where he tells us to go. Go out into the world and share the gospel. And we see this fellow do that as an example that is set before us here. Um, Another thing I think I want us to appreciate is that it is from Jesus that he hears from that these things are true, that he is whole and that Jesus has healed him. And so... For those of us that come to church and sit under the preaching and teaching of the word, we know that God has ordained pastors and teachers to teach truth. But of a truth, you have to hear from Christ. Otherwise, these are simply academic um, pursuits, academic um, interests, um, and they will not resonate and take up residence in your heart. God has to impress these truths upon your hearts. And so I, I pray when I preach, that you would hear from God, that you would be hearing the words of Christ, that you would be hearing truths from Christ, and that he would um, impress those truths upon your hearts. Um, I've said this before, and I'll say it again. The gap between the head and the heart is as wide as eternity and deep as hell. God, and only God, can cross that bridge and impress these truths upon your hearts. And so we see that here. He hears from the Lord in the temple of those truths, which he then goes out and then shares with others here. And that's what we are to do. We are to go out into the world and witness there about what the Lord has done for us. Um, Now, 
when the Jews hear that it was Jesus who healed this man on the Sabbath day, they persecute him and seek to slay him. Now, I think we should appreciate what it says in the Old Testament with respect to the law, that if you work on the Sabbath day, um, you're subject to the death penalty. And I'm not going to cover that this morning. I'm going to cover that later when we get to it in John uh, chapter 7, because in there, this issue carries all the way for the next several months up until the Feast of Tabernacles. In John chapter 7, um, in verse 19, he says, Did not Moses give you the law, and yet none of you keep it? Keep the law? Why go ye about to kill me? They're killing him over this. They want to kill him over this issue about breaking the Sabbath. And like I said, we'll cover that, that later. But in verse 23, he gets down. And he says, he says, you're angry at me because I have made a man every whit whole on the Sabbath day. And who is the man that he made whole? It's this certain man here that he has made whole in John chapter 5. So this issue is going to carry itself uh, through. They're going to harbor this against him. And we'll get uh, to that later. So... In verse 15 and 16, it says, Therefore did the Jews persecute Jesus and sought to slay him because he had done these things on the Sabbath day. So, interesting to note, they don't seek to kill the man that carried his bed and violated the Sabbath day. They seek to kill Jesus because he healed the man on the Sabbath day. I suppose you can tell the one fellow to put the bed down, but you're not about to tell Christ to unheal the man and then come back on the next day and reheal him. I mean, when you think of what people are thinking here and the things that they do, it's clearly indicative that, as the Scripture says, the carnal mind is at enmity with God. Man is antagonistic towards God, and you see that all throughout the Scriptures. And so we can never appreciate the depravity of man and God's gracious um, mercy that he extends to us. You know, it says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were literally spinning in his face... He came to us and gave his only begotten son um, to die for us. Um, now, um, in verse 17, he addresses the issue about them being uh, seeking to kill him because of the uh, he healed on the Sabbath day. In verse 17, he says, My father worketh hitherto, and I work. Meaning, God the Father... My father, Jesus' father, works on the Sabbath, and I work on the Sabbath. Now, we can appreciate what the Scripture says, that uh, when God had finished all his work, that he rested on the seventh day. And that's the principle from which the Sabbath flows. We also have to appreciate what the Lord says, that Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. It's a good idea to rest on the seventh day. We need to do that, and then we can get recharged and go about our work the rest of the week. But anybody who has children, anybody who has pets, anybody who's got any form of responsibility in this world knows that you work seven days a week. Your pets have to be fed. You've got to water them. You've got to feed them. You've got to walk them. Your children have needs. You've got to attend to those needs. And um, it should come to no surprise to anybody, but running the cosmos in the universe is a big job. And it's got to be done seven days a week. The Lord makes it rain where it needs to rain. He waters where it needs to be watered. He feeds people that need to be feed, fed. Yeah, you know, the sparrow doesn't take a thought for what it needs to do to feed itself. God is taking care of and he's running everything according to his glory and according to his plan. He's got to keep things going here. And when we get into this issue about the Sabbath, uh, and the book of Luke speaks about how, um, 
how does not one of you, you know, if you have a, an ox fall in the ditch, don't you pull it out? And when it's in its stall, don't you lead it out to water on the Sabbath day? And so, uh, while it's true, he's convicting them of hypocrisy. He's also impressing another truth upon them with respect to the Sabbath, which, again, we'll cover later. But I want us to appreciate here what he's saying here. He says, hey, my father works hitherto up to this point. He's, God's been continuously working. He's been working up to this point. And guess what? So have I as well. And so uh, as we go down here, um, you might expect them to receive some of that. But their response is that in verse 18, the Jews sought the more to kill him, so they didn't accept that explanation. They rather became more antagonistic towards him. And it says in verse 18, Therefore the Jews sought the more to kill him, because not only had he broken the Sabbath, but said also that God was his father, making himself equal with God. Now in the Greek there, the word own is there. They understood him to say that God was his own father. This is not some generic thing where the Lord talks to them about, you know, are ye not sons of God, uh, small s, but this is something specific. They understood what he was saying here. And so my criticism of that elder who did not see in the scripture where Jesus um, declares his divinity, they got it because um, they sought the more to kill him. And so what follows here is Jesus is going to set before us his divinity, how God is his own father, um, which, of course, he is, Jesus having been conceived by the Holy Ghost. And scripture says that he proceeds from the Father because he came from the Father. And therefore, he is equal with the Father. He is equal with the fathers. And that's what they understood him to say because they sought the more to kill him. And so as we go down through these verses here, I want to walk through them. But they say things that we as Christians who have the benefit of, one, the Holy Ghost, and two, having the entire scripture set before us, things that we know to be, be true. I had our deacon read this morning from Revelation chapter 1 up to verse 8. And in verse 8, it says of Jesus in particular, he is the Almighty. He is the Almighty. It's a, declar- a declarative statement. There's no... No issues about it, no questions about it. He is the Almighty. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 6, again, verses that we should all understand and all should appreciate. Um, I'm going to read that to us, Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, verse 6, it says, Speaking of Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery, to be equal with God. Well, why would he not think it robbery to be equal with God? Because he's in the form of God. He is the Almighty. As it says in 1 Timothy, it says that God was manifest in flesh. Jesus was fully God and fully man. He was God manifest in flesh. And as God manifest in the flesh, verse 7 of Philippians chapter 2, made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. So there is Jesus standing before those individuals. He's in the form of a man. He's in the likeness of flesh. Um, He has been manifest in the flesh, and he is um, the Almighty. Um, But they don't have the benefit of those verses there. They do not have the benefit of what it says in John chapter 1, which we had already covered that in the beginning was the Word, and we know that Jesus is the Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. 
All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And yet the first verse in the Bible says, In the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. The word God there in Genesis chapter 1 is Elohim. It's plural. It's plural. So the declarative statement is there that there was a trinity involved in that, and that individual in particular that's in view would be Christ. It says not anything was made without him. That was made. He made everything. God spoke everything into existence. Um, and Christ was the individual through which and by which he did those things. But we can think of them as all being done by, um, by Christ and, and by the Godhead. And let me share this, this with you. Um, I don't find any profit in trying to separate the Godhead. I know lots of people that have tried to do that, and it just seems that at some point or another they're going to get themselves um, into trouble. Um, I have tried it. Uh, years ago, I was writing a doctrinal statement for a church, and I was trying to import tasks out to different people. And I had a, one pastor say something which I thought was very clever, you know, the will of the Father, the work of the Son, and the witness of the Holy Ghost. And yet, when we look at what's going to take, what the Lord's going to say here in John chapter 5 is, guess what? It's the will of the Father and the will of the Son. They all have the same will, and we've just read about how the Father works hitherto, and I work. They're both working. The entire Trinity is involved in the salvation of every single human being that is saved. God is intimately, as the Godhead, is involved. We know what it says in 1 John chapter 5, um, verse 6, 7. For a three that bear record in heaven. John, 1 John 5, 7. For a three that bear record in heaven. The Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one. They are one. Father the Son, and the Holy Ghost, they are one. So uh, uh, God doesn't split himself up. A house divided shall not stand. They obviously are all operating in unison and working together. Um, it's not like one is uh, doing one thing over there and another one's working over there and a third one is working somewhere else. They're all working. To, it's one God working um, towards the same ends, accomplishing the same things together. But in any event, with this, I, getting back to the the fact that we have a benefit, we have the benefit of, of having these scriptures in front of us that these men did not have. In John um, 1.14, it says, And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld this glory, the glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The disciples beheld this glory, but these Jews are not beholding his glory. They're antagonistic towards the Lord, and they are gonna, um, they're going to be judged by him. So again, we have the benefit of these wonderful verses um, that they do not have. However, they do have the benefit of what's written in Isaiah chapter 9. In Isaiah chapter 9, in verse 6 and 7, it says, For unto us a child is born. So they should have appreciated that a child, a woman, is going to give birth. A child is going to be born. Unto us a son is given. He's both born and given. Those are two different things. As the Son of God, he's given to us, but as of a woman, he is born. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. He's going to rule over everything, and we're going to see that in, as we move through chapter 5 here. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. This one they should have paid attention to. He will be called the Mighty God. The mighty God. Now here's a contradiction because we're talking about a son that is a child that is born and a son that is given, and yet he shall be called the everlasting father, the everlasting father, the prince of peace. Verse 7, of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end. So his authority, his rule, and his reign will go on for eternity. He rules and reigns over everything. So they did have the benefit uh, of that verse. Um, and so there he is. 
He who is called the Mighty Father, the Prince of Peace, um, the Son that was given, the child that was born, is standing right in front of them, talking to them. And so in verse 19, where we're going to pick it up now, now he's talking about himself. Then answered Jesus and said unto them, John chapter 5, verse 19, Verily, verily, I say unto you, the Son can do nothing of himself, but what he seeth the Father do. For what things soever he doeth, these also doeth the Son likewise. Now, you should not read any limitations on Christ in that when he says that he can do nothing himself. God cannot lie and he cannot fail. There is none that can stay his hand. The fact that he has characteristics and attributes that um, are articulated here, and as I said, that God cannot lie, is not a limitation placed upon him. The solution to this is found in verse 30, where he says in the second part of it, he says, the will, he says, I seek not mine own will, but the will of the Father with hath, which hath sent me. We know that when the Lord is in the garden of Gethsemane, he prays, not my will be done, but thy will be done. As a child of 12, when he's in the temple and his parents can't find him, he says, Wist ye not that I would be about my father's business? He always subordinated his will to the will of his father. And indeed, as Christians, we should too. There was no struggle or no battle with Christ with respect to his will versus his father's will. It's one will. It's always been one will and it always will be one will. I have a battle with the will of God because there are things that I want to do which um, is contrary to God's will. And guess what? I'm going to do his will. And so I spend my time on my knees uh, praying that, that my will and the Lord's will would be the, the same. But that's not a struggle for the Lord. There's, there's no, um, like I said, there's nothing here to suggest that he lacks power and authority in any way. Their wills are one and the same. And that's what he will do. He always does the will of his Father. Verse 20, it says, For the Father loveth the Son, and showeth him all things that himself doeth. And he will show him greater works than these that ye may marvel. There is a relationship between the Father and the Son, obviously rooted in love. And that word for love there is one that intimates a intimate relationship. Um, and John 17 speaks about that love that the Father has for the Son that we as Christians should enjoy also. But it's because of this love that the Father shows him all things. So as omniscient as the Father is, so is the Son. They have uh, common knowledge. There's nothing that the Father uh, knows that the Son does not know because it's all been shown unto him. You recall when Moses desired to seek, uh, see the glory of the Lord, what did the Lord do but hid him in the cleft of a rock and only let him see his hind parts? Not so with Christ. He is God Almighty and he has the Lord's, he has the Father's omniscience. Um, up in verse 18 there, not only does um, he do whatever things the Father does, he also does it the same way that the Father does it. It says here, these also doeth the Son likewise. So, He's doing what the Father does, and he does it the exact same way that the Father uh, does it. Why, again? Because these three are, are one. And he talks in the second part of verse uh, 20 there, he says he will show him greater works than these, and he's going to talk about those greater works, and those greater works would have to do with life and judgment. Just as the Father raises people to life as he will, so does the, um, the Son. In verse 22, as we continue here, it says, For the Father judgeth no man, but hath committed all judgment unto the Son. 
Now that's an interesting statement that he has committed all judgment unto the Son. And over in verse 27 here, it says, and hath committed, hath given him authority to execute judgment also because he is the Son of Man. We have a principle in our judicial system where we are judged by our peers. We are judged by our peers. Now, Jesus is God manifest in flesh, so as a man, he's going to judge men. That principle comes from Genesis chapter 9, verse 6. In Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, it says, Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. For, in him, for the in, him, in the image of God made he man. So, if you shed man's blood, by man will your blood be shed. Now, Jesus, fully man, fully God. So, he's been given judgment over all things because he is the Son of Man. And so, in the context of, of judgment here, we are judged by one of our peers, one who um, suffered temptation as like, um, like us and yet is without sin. So... Um, Father has committed all judgment into his hand, and he's going to judge righteously because he's going to ever seek his Father's will, which we'll read about in a minute here. So in verse 23, it says that all men should honor the Son even as they honor the Father. He that honoreth not the Son honoreth not the Father which hath sent him. To love the Father means you should love the, the Son. Uh, years ago, I was preaching at a funeral, and I, I shared that. We had uh, lost a friend, and I said, well, if you love him, you're going to love his children because you're going to see his characteristics and attributes in the children. And the first, uh, first John speaks about that, about, about Christian love. If you're a Christian, obviously, you would love the Father. And if you love the Father, you should love his Son. And if you love his Son, you should love other Christians as well, because we should share his characteristics and attributes. We are partakers of the divine nature. So that love should be all-encompassing. Um, and as a result of that, we should honor the Son as we honor the Father. He, he has the same characteristics and attributes, and because they are one, we should honor them both. The same honor that we honor the Father, we should honor the Son as well. The Father hath sent him. Now in verse 24 we are going to see that which took place with respect to this certain man. So we're going to see a demonstration of this power and authority that the Lord has. He says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my word, that would be Christ speaking, which that man did, he heard the Lord speak. He told him to get up, take up his bed and walk. He heard that. He that heareth my word and believe on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death to life. That what took place with respect to that man's healing represents that. The Lord spoke to him, and he heard it. We know that in Proverbs 20, verse 12, it says, Hath not the Lord made you know, the seeing eye and the hearing ear? And the answer is yes, he has made that. If you hear the Lord, it's because he has given you an ear uh, to hear him. He has given you eyes um, to see him. Now, it's interesting what we see in verse 24, because it's similar to what we read in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him, believeth in Christ, should not perish but have everlasting life. Here he's telling us, if you hear the Son and believe what the Father has said, you have everlasting life. 
And so, again, he's placing these two. The Lord is placing himself on equality with the Father in terms of having faith in the Father uh, and having faith in the Son and to believe in what the Lord has, um, the Father has said. In 1 John chapter 5, it speaks about how if you do not believe what God has said, you have made him a liar. Uh, in verse 9 of 1 John 5, it says, If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. For this is the witness of God, which he hath testified of his Son. He that believeth on the Son of God hath the witness in himself. He that believeth not God hath made him a liar, because he believeth not the record that God gave of his Son. So the Lord, the Father, witnesses about who Christ is, and we have to believe his witness. If you believe his witness, then you have then you have life. If you don't believe his witness, you've called him a liar, and um, you do not have life in you. Verse 11, And this is the record that God gave unto us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. This is the record, the Bible is the record of the things that God has taught about his Son, Jesus, and we are to believe those things, and then we have life. He that hath the Son hath life, and he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. So life is in the Son, and then we read here that life is in the Father as well. It's in, it's in both of them. Again, making himself equal with God. They are one and the same. Now, verse 25, oh, let me uh, continue. look at verse 24 again. It says, uh, Who that believeth on him that hath sent me hath everlasting life, and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death to life. Um, I hope you can appreciate the depth of the truth of the reality of that statement. If the Lord has quickened you, if you have heard his voice, you have been um, transferred from death unto life. This man in, verse, in chapter 5 symbolizes somebody translating from death to life. He heard the Lord's voice, he got up and he walked, and then um, we find him in the, the temple. That is true of every individual that hears the Lord speak um, life unto him. They have been transitioned from death to life. You're, there is nothing in the scripture that would even intimate or suggest that you would go the other way. It's only a one-way street. You go from death to life. You do not go from life to death. And the life that's in view here is everlasting life. Those are the words there in verse 24. It is everlasting life. You have everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation. So on that great day of judgment, there is no condemnation now to them that believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, that's what the scripture says. I believe that's in the, in the book of Romans. So you've been transitioned from death to life, and condemnation is, is passed away. It is not something that is, um, you need to ever be concerned with. And verse 25, Verily, verily, I say unto you, the hour is coming, and now is, when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear it shall live. What is he speaking about here? He's talking about people who are dead in trespasses and sin. And when they hear the voice of the Lord, right now, they come to life. They, they shall live. Now, Scripture refers to this as the first resurrection. If you look in uh, Revelation chapter 20, it'll speak about um, the first resurrection in verse 5, and then it talks about the second death. So, John chapter 5 helps us appreciate what those things are. The first resurrection or has already taken place in your life if you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ because he has spoken to you and you who were dead in trespasses and sin 
have now have um, eternal life, and you shall live. You shall live forever. Verse 26, For as the Father hath life in himself, so hath he given to the Son to have life in himself. And so, we, as I mentioned already, life is incumbent to God the Father, and it is in the Son himself. That is, that is true life. Yet is eternal life. Verse 27, And hath given him authority to execute judgment also, because he is the Son of Man. We talked about why that is true. Verse 28, Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming. Now this is exclusively future tense. In the which all that are in the graves shall hear his voice. He's talking about something different here. Now he's talking about um, the resurrection on the last day. Verse 29, And shall come forth they that have done good unto the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. So I want us to appreciate here that there are two types of, of um, resurrections. There are two types of resurrections set before us here. The book of Daniel um, spoke of those two, and so the Lord is saying something that has already been said. In Daniel chapter 12, verse 2, the Lord says, And many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth, meaning people that are in the graves, shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. So he's speaking about the eternal judgment of all of those people that do not have life, those that are not in Christ, nor is Christ in them. And we read about that, again, also in the book of um, Revelation, where it speaks of the second death. And this resurrection brings everybody before the great throne of judgment. And so you have people that are um, spiritually dead are going to receive uh, a body in which they are going to suffer uh, eternal punishment of the Lord. And verse 14 says, And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. There are two deaths that take place, um, can take place for an individual. You recall when the Lord is warning about who you should fear. He says, fear not them that which destroy the body, but he who can destroy the body and soul and cast it into hell. So the death of your body is the first death, and the death of your soul, if you're subject to the Lord's condemnation, would be the second death. If you've uh, enjoyed the benefit of the first resurrection, you will never know the second death spoken about there in, in Revelation. So what's set before us here is that there are two types of resurrections, one unto eternal life and one unto eternal uh, damnation. And so with the Lord speaking of these things here, that um, should put to bed any debate about purgatory or any other uh, intermediate between the grave and the throne of judgment. When you come... When people, when the Lord speaks and those, the people come out of the grave, they're either going to glory or they're going to um, suffer from eternal damnation. In verse 30 says, I can of mine own self do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not mine own will, but the will of the Father which hath sent me. So the Lord, as I've said, ever does that his will is ever in consistent with and, conform it, uh, and conforms to the will of the Father. They are of one mind. So as we're looking at these section, this section here about the Lord speaking of himself, we can appreciate that he works just like the Father works. They are equal on that regard. That they will is the uh, same will. His will is equal with that of the Father. His omniscience 
is the same as that of the Father. His sovereign rights and rule over life and death is the same as it is of the Father. His honor that he should receive is the same as the Father. That he can impart life to whomever he will, that's the same as his Father. And his judicial power and authority is the same as it is with the Father. So set before us here in, in, in very concise terms is the Lord speaking about. He is, in fact, equal with the Father. He is indeed the Almighty, as we read in Revelation, and He is the everlasting Father, as we read in Isaiah, that He and the Father are one. And so in Philippians 2, He thought it not robbery to be equal with God because He is indeed God. And so as we close up this section, we should appreciate what's written in Revelation chapter 19, verse 1, and it says there, And after these things I heard a great voice of much people in heaven saying, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and honor and power unto the Lord our God. Speaking, of course, since this is the revelation of Christ Jesus, speaking of Christ, because he has done everything that is required um, to secure a people unto himself, a people unto the Father, um, through the cross. Um, his will and the Father's will were one and the um, same. So we'll close with that. And all God's people said, Amen. <laughs>